From The New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today, the president holds an extraordinary news conference to address, for a third time, the violence in Charlottesville. Asked if he equates white supremacists with counter-protesters on the left, the president says, I am not putting anybody on a moral plane. It's Wednesday, August 16th. Hello, everybody. Great to be back in New York with all of our friends. Mark Lanner, can you describe the scene for us on Tuesday afternoon? Well, President Trump was back on his home turf. He was in the lobby of his tower, Trump Tower, in midtown Manhattan. It's a familiar scene for many of us who covered the transition. This time it was different because there was a podium with the presidential seal and flags, and he was surrounded by cabinet secretaries on what we're going to be discussing today, which is infrastructure. And he had come to basically talk about a meeting on infrastructure, which is one of his legislative priorities. The questions, of course, were mostly about what happened last weekend in Charlottesville. And the president, rather than avoiding the topic, plunged right into it, and the press conference quickly took on a life of its own. But unlike you and unlike, excuse me, unlike you and unlike the media, before I make a statement, I like to know the facts. Reporters began asking him uh, to clarify remarks he had made about the violence in Charlottesville last weekend. Two questions. Was this terrorism? And can you tell us how you're feeling about your One of the first questions came from a colleague of ours, Maggie Haberman, uh, who asked him if what happened in Charlottesville was terrorism. Well, I think the driver of the car is a disgrace to himself, his family, and this country. And that is, you can call it terrorism, you can call it murder, you can call it whatever you want. I would just call it as the fastest one to come up with a good verdict. That's what I'd call it. Because there is a question, is it murder, is it terrorism? And then you get into legal semantics. The driver of the car is a murderer. And what he did was a horrible, horrible, inexcusable thing. So, Mark, the president's attorney general has called this quite clearly an act of terrorism, the, the driving of this car into the crowd. The president is, is not willing to use that word categorically. And, of course, the interesting point to make here is that President Trump has been fiercely critical of other politicians, and particularly President Obama, who refused to use the phrase radical Islamic terrorism. And yet in this case, when it involves a domestic and racially inspired case of violence, it's President Trump who shrinks from using the phrase terrorism, even if, as you point out, his own attorney general is is open to calling it that. Excuse me. And you had some very bad people in that group. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. He sort of blurred the distinction where, uh, you know, most people would say that the the alt-right, the neo-Nazis, the white nationalists uh, brought an agenda of hate uh, into this situation. He's trying to draw to muddy the waters a bit and draw this rough equivalence between the two sides. So, so Mark, then the president introduces a phrase that I hadn't heard before. What about the alt-left that came charging at Excuse me. What about the alt-left that came charging at the, as you say, the alt-right? Do they have any semblance of guilt? 
the alt-left. Let me ask you this. What about the fact they came charging, that they came charging with clubs in their hands, swinging clubs? Do they have any problem? I think they do. So, you know, have I'm you heard that term before? That is, horrible, is that a term? Horrible day. Wait a minute. I'm not finished. I'm not finished, fake news. It's, it's certainly very day. new, and I think that it's actually something that is growing out of the aftermath of Charlottesville. Mm. I think one of the key drivers on the side of the alt-right uh, in this effort to kind of draw moral equivalence is to brand a very disparate group of people who are counter-protesters under the banner of the alt-left. And, and in a way, it's ironic because the alt-right insists that they are not a sinister force, that mm-hmm. they're motivated by love of country and patriotism, yet they seem to be eager to use the bad rap that the phrase alt-right has gotten and apply it to this group of counter-protesters and demonstrators. I, I will tell you something. I watched those very closely, much more closely than you people watched it. And you have... Uh, you, you had a group on one side that was bad, and you had a group on the other side that was also very violent. And nobody wants to say that, but I'll say it right now. You had a group, you had a group on the other side that came charging in without a permit, and they were very, very violent. I think that the president is picking up on a theme that we're going to be hearing more and more of in the social media on the alt-right, and that's, again, to somehow suggest that there is a parallel group on the far left that uses tactics that are every bit as rough and are every bit as sinister in their motivation as many think the alt-right is. Do you think that what you call the alt-left is the same as neo-Nazis? Those people, all of those people, excuse me, I've condemned neo-Nazis. I've condemned many different groups, but not all of those people were neo-Nazis, believe me. Not all of those people were white supremacists by any stretch. Those people were also there because they wanted to protest the taking down of a statue, Robert E. Lee. So, excuse me, and you take a look at some of the groups and you see and you know it if you were honest reporters, which in many cases you're not. Right. He but seems to be focused on what happened in the park that day, very, very literally. But he doesn't seem to be putting it all into a larger context of, of why these two sides were there and what each side represents. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. By focusing on on it in such a granular way, he's purposely avoiding the larger context, which is that these groups came into this progressive university town to a university founded by Thomas Jefferson uh, and tried to use this, you know, I don't want to call it hallowed ground because that's probably overstating it, but use a, used a place that's freighted with symbolism to champion and deliver a message of, of hatred, of xenophobia, of whites reclaiming the country. And I think that that context is lost when you treat it almost in a dry police blotter way and just focus on who is throwing a punch at whom, which is, I think, the way the president was trying to portray it in the news conference. I mean, is purposely avoiding it one take and is potentially another, the idea that the president of the United States this president doesn't really see the world that way through context and through history and and maybe with as much nuance. Yes, but I think in this case it also represents a deliberate effort to 
uh, rob it of that broader context and allow him to make uh, these points about equivalency that are simply not possible to make once you put it into any historical context. So, Mark, you mentioned this idea of, of moral equivalence, and there's a, there's a very big moment in, in this news conference that seems quite memorable beyond this news conference, maybe even for the, for the presidency, that's kind of around this idea. Are you putting what you're calling the alt-left and white supremacists on the same moral plane? I'm not putting anybody on a moral plane. What I'm saying is this. You had a group on one side and you had a group on the other, and they came at each other with clubs, and it was vicious, and it was horrible, and it was a horrible thing to watch. And the president's answer was fascinating. He said, I'm not putting anybody on a moral plane. But there is another side. There was a group on this side, you can call them the left, you've just called them the left, that came violently attacking the other group. So you can say what you want, but that's the way it is. You said there was hatred, there was violence on both sides. Are, are well, I do think there's blame, yes. I think there's blame on both sides. You look, at, you look at both sides. I think there's blame on both sides. And I have no doubt about it, and you don't have any doubt about it either. And, 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 and if you reported it accurately, you would say... And I think this is actually an extremely important moment, perhaps the most telling moment of the news conference, because the president, in effect, was saying, I'm not here to set down a moral standard. Um, This is what presidents do. This is what the modern American presidency is about. It's about setting a, a moral benchmark that the citizenry, that Americans can all kind of understand is the standard. The president is is really the only person in American society who has that powerful a role to play. President Trump today said, I'm not interested in doing that. That's an abdication of something that's very central to the role of the presidency. And I think it's something that we will be talking about and thinking about the implications of for quite some time. I mean, Mark, I I was reminded of something that I went rooting around for when, when I read that quote, which was from President Roosevelt. And he said that the presidency is preeminently a place of moral leadership. And I think we can all think of moments in, in the presidencies of our lifetime where a president was called upon to do that or, or called upon himself to do that, right? I think in some ways it's the, it's the deepest calling of a, of a leader and, and the most difficult challenge of a leader. And in my time covering the White House, I watched President Obama wrestle with this on the race issue. He didn't always summon the words exactly the way he wanted to, but he, I think, viewed it as the greatest test of his presidency. So to hear President Trump, in effect, say, this isn't part of my job description, was a stunning moment. You had people in that group that were there to protest the taking down of, to them, a very, very important statue and the renaming of a park from Robert E. Lee to another name. So, Mark, then the stated reason for all of the protests and activities in Charlottesville came up in this this news conference, which was the statue of Robert E. Lee in the park in downtown Charlottesville. Yes. George Washington was a slave owner. Was George Washington a slave owner? So will George Washington now lose his status? Are we going to take down... Excuse me. Are we going to take down... Are we going to take down statues to George Washington? 
the rather striking point that the president made here was to draw yet another equivalence. This was between uh, Robert E. Lee, military commander who devoted his career to breaking up the United States, uh, and George Washington, our first president and one of the founding fathers. Um, Trump raised the possibility or the argument that really there was very little separating George Washington from Robert E. Lee. So if you're going to tear down a statue of a Confederate leader like Robert E. Lee, Mm -hmm. what's next? Tearing down a statue of George Washington or Thomas Jefferson? How about Thomas Jefferson? What do you think of Thomas Jefferson? You like him? Okay, good. Are we going to take down the statue? Because he was a major slave owner. Now, we're going to take down his statue. The president pointed out that both of those founding fathers were slave owners, which is true. The difference is that George Washington and Thomas Jefferson created and laid the groundwork for the Union. Uh, Robert E. Lee devoted his life to tearing the Union asunder. And to sort of draw an equivalence between them was yet another startling uh, statement on the president's part. And what I assumed he was doing there was, was giving the protesters more of a valid reason for what they were doing, one that wasn't rooted in racism or anti-Semitism or or something objectionable. Yes, I think that's right. I think he was trying to give them a rationale. There were people in that rally, and I looked the night before. If you look, there were people protesting very quietly the taking down of the statue of Robert E. Lee. I'm sure in that group there were some bad ones. The following day, it looked like they had some rough, bad people, neo-Nazis, white nationalists, whatever you want to call them. But you had a lot of people in that group that were there to innocently protest and very legally protest because, you know, I don't know if you know, they had a permit. The other group didn't have a permit. So I only tell you this. There are two sides to a story. And trying to uh, suggest that, look, this wasn't merely about wading into a crowd with clubs and mace and beating people up, that there was there was a rationale here. And by the way, it's a, a rationale that uh, serious people can debate. Right. He seemed to be making the point that there are plenty of good Americans who think that political correctness has has gone too far. Yes, and that's, uh, of course, been uh, one of his recurring messages, and it was one of the appeals of his campaign, that he wasn't going to be uh, held hostage to political correctness. He was going to call it like he saw it. The Donald Trump of, of this news conference was the Donald Trump of the 2016 campaign. And I think it's no accident that this news conference uh, took place in the lobby of Trump Tower, Mm. the same place where you remember Donald Trump came riding down that escalator to declare his candidacy. For, For Donald Trump, the return to New York, I think, felt emotionally like the return to the candidacy, to the political pugilist, the fighter that Donald Trump reveled in being during the campaign. I think that what's been difficult and perhaps not altogether happy for Donald Trump is adjusting to life in the marble mausoleum of the White House. Mm. Uh, He's never felt fully comfortable there. He did feel very comfortable uh, and seemed to be savoring the experience of being back home and giving voice to a side of Donald Trump uh, that we do see from time to time, but that we haven't really seen this vividly since the election. Uh, So that's why it was shocking as a president, but familiar as a political candidate. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. Do you plan to go to Charlottesville, Mr. President?
Does anyone know I own a house in Charlottesville? Where is it? Oh boy, it's going to be. It's in Charlottesville. You'll see. Is it near Where is the winery or something? It's a. It is the winery. I mean, I know a lot about Charlottesville. Charlottesville is a great place that's been very badly hurt over the last couple of days. But I own. I own actually one of the largest wineries in the United States. It's in Charlottesville. Mark, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Michael. Well, I really think jobs can have a big impact. I think if we continue to... On Tuesday night, Republican leaders expressed outrage over President Trump's comments. In a statement, House Speaker Paul Ryan said, quote, We must be clear. White supremacy is repulsive. This bigotry is counter to all this country stands for. There can be no moral ambiguity. We'll be right back. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with The New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good, but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. Here's what else you need to know today. If you look at some of those people that you're talking about, they're outside of the country. During his press conference at Trump Tower, the president hit back at the executives on his manufacturing council, who have resigned in protest of his response to the violence in Charlottesville. They're having... Uh, a lot of their product made outside. If you look at Merck as an example, take a look where, excuse me, excuse me, take a look at where their product is made. It's made outside of our country. We want products made in the country. Now, I have the president suggested that the reason the executives were resigning is because they do their manufacturing in other countries. They're leaving out of embarrassment because they make their products outside. He also addressed criticism from the CEO of Walmart, Doug McMillan who said that the president had, quote, missed a critical opportunity to help bring our country together. So the head of Walmart, who I know, was a very nice guy, was making a political statement. Following the news conference, several more members of the president's manufacturing council resigned. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Marbaro. See you tomorrow.